The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You know, it is a tragedy to have something and to lose it. Like maybe you have uh, something that is very important to you and it gets accidentally lost or maybe it gets stolen. It's a tragedy to have something and to lose it or lose track of it. But there's a a different type of tragedy when you have something and you squander it. Like to have something and by uh, your own neglect, you lose track of it or you lose it or you waste it. That's a different type of tragedy. I want to give you an example of that. There's a woman in, uh, in Britain that in the early 70s or mid 70s, I should say, her name is Clarissa Dixon Wright. Clarissa Dixon Wright, she was a successful attorney in London. She uh, did very well. She made a good amount of money. And in the mid 70s, uh, unexpectedly, her parents passed away. And they left her a huge fortune, adjusted for today's standards. We're talking like over $17 million. All of a sudden, like overnight, she has $17 million, which in, in uh, you know, she's got a good career. You know, she's, she's got great earning capacity and earning potential. And so she should have been set for life. She could have quit and not worked ever again, or she could have kept uh, working and maybe set up future generations. I mean, she was set. But she squandered it. And over the next few years, she started uh, pursuing every luxury she could get her hand on. She abused substances. She'd go on extravagant vacations. She'd charter yachts and expensive airplanes and go to the most expensive places and just just blew through the money. And in just a, a few years, by the early 80s, from all of her partying, she could no longer practice law in London. And on top of that, she had gone through all of her money and all of her inheritance, and she was penniless. She actually became homeless just in a few years. Now you hear that, and there's something about that. It's one thing, like if by, by no fault of her own, something happened and she lost all of her money, or maybe it was stolen, or someone cheated her. Like that's, that's one kind of tragedy. It's another type of tragedy when you're like, what are you doing? You have it, and you've squandered it. You've just wasted all of it. Like how could you do that? There's just a different type of pain when you hear that kind of tragedy. It just makes you want to just stop her in the late 70s before she's gone through all of it. You just wish, could anyone just have sat her down and just said, please stop, just stop. Just stop what you're doing. Well, I got this vacation. No, just stop. Just stop in your tracks. You could still redeem what you've got. There's not only, you know, so much that you could do for your own life, but there's so much you could do with that money for other people's lives, for future generations. I mean, there's so much you have don't waste it. You just want to, you just wish someone could have stopped her and said, don't squander it. See, squandering something is a different type of tragedy. And in some ways, it, it may be even a harder story to hear. Now, let me just take that idea of squandering and, and bring that over into what we're talking about today. Because if you're hearing this today, there's something that you've been given. Not even something that you earned. It's not something you earned. It's not something that you worked hard to get. It's just something that you have been given. And if we're not careful, it is so easy to squander it. And and what I'm talking about is something of infinite greater value than money. I'm not talking about money. It's something, oh, okay, it's not money. Maybe it's some kind of more like, you know, bigger thing like, you know, uh, I I don't know, like a power or, or a right that you have, freedom or whatever. No, 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 it's higher than all of that. We have been given the opportunity to worship the living God. And if that is squandered, that would be the greatest tragedy imaginable. 
a horror. And so because that's something so easily squandered, there's a passage that cries out to us and says, stop. Just stop what you're doing right now. Don't miss this opportunity to change course. I want to take you to this passage, and I want us to explore this passage together. It's in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to go to chapter 2. This is, uh, Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. It is one of the prophets. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. Let me give you the background of where this is situated in the story of the Old Testament. Jeremiah is many, many years after the time of David. So if you can think of when David was the king, he passed on the kingdom to Solomon. Solomon's sons, uh, they split. The, the kingdom got split. And so there became a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And this is hundreds of years after that. Uh, at this point already, the northern kingdom of Israel has turned away from God, and they have been conquered by the Assyrians. Now alone, God's people are in Judah, where the capital city Jerusalem is. And over the course of the ministry of Jeremiah, they will face the Babylonians who will come through, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and will take God's people back into exile in Babylon. And then you've got the time of, of guys like Daniel and Esther and then Nehemiah and Ezra, and they come back and they rebuild. But this is in that period, those last few years, those last couple kings and over when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. And it's, it's really tragic how the people, God's people are turning away from God, but there's this bright spot that happens during the ministry of Jeremiah. There's a king by the name of Josiah. He's this young king, and they're doing some repairs in the temple, and they say, King, we found this book, and they dust it off. They dust it off, the Bible. And he says, wow, that seems like that's an important book. What does it say? And it reads the law on how they should worship God and God alone. And Josiah is horrified because they've actually set up idols in the temple, and there's worship places to other idols all over, all around, throughout the people of God. And Josiah does what no other king has the capacity to do. He brings down and crushes and disintegrates down into tiny pieces. He grinds them down to dust, all of the idols. He just tears them down. And it's an incredible moment of returning to the Lord. Unfortunately, his son goes the exact opposite direction, brings all the idols back, and the Lord allows them, the people of Judah, to get taken into exile. And this all happens through the ministry of Jeremiah. I want you to hear, this is right in chapter 2, so it's the beginning of the book. Here's what God is saying through Jeremiah to his people. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Therefore... I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. These are some really strong words, and, and through this text, uh, we're going to try and just get a grasp of the gravity of these words. The first things it says is God says, I will contend with you. Now, just let that just sink in for a moment. That should be, I mean, literally, I mean, this is not an exaggeration. Like, you can't overestimate how utterly horrifying that is. Um, I was just thinking about something that happened. It was uh, several years ago. Um, Rebecca and I, we, before we had kids, um, we, we had a cat. I'm sorry, okay? I mean, everyone makes mistakes, all right? Um, we had a cat, and his name was Gorg. We called him Gorg. And uh, he was kind of a, a funny cat, um, and he was just 
weird things would happen to him all the time. And there was this one time where um, I think we just brought in the groceries, and so there was all these plastic bags from Publix sitting around. And he sees this plastic bag, and uh, you know, under the, the wind from the fan, it was kind of crinkling and moving, and that got his attention. And he got like that cat ready to pounce thing. His eyes get all dilated, okay? Like he's got it, he gets real crouched down and he jumps on the bag and it crinkles and he jumps back and he's scared and he starts attacking and he's rolling around and he'd run away and he'd come back and he's pouncing on this bag. And as he's kind of doing, we're like, oh, that's kind of a funny cat thing that's happening, okay? But one time he jumps on it and one of the little handles gets wrapped around his back paw. So he jumps on it and when he runs away, the bag chases him. And as he's running through the house, this bag is chasing behind him and he's trying to run faster and faster and he's getting more and more scared because this bag has just locked its sights on him and is gonna destroy him. I've never seen him run so fast through, through the house. His hair's all fluffy, his tail's all fluffy. He's running into things, running up the sides of furniture. And at some point, like, I'm seeing him, like, this cat is out of his mind in terror. I had to, like, finally wait for him to run by and, like, tackle him and pull the bag off of him. And, um, you know, he hid under the couch for, like, three days, you know, just recovering from such a terror. And I was thinking, like, I don't know that I've ever been that afraid like uh, that he was, okay? Like I don't know if I've ever felt that kind of fear, just kind of bristling in horror, okay? Like just, you know, all the hair on the back of my neck just standing up, just full of adrenaline. Like what would cause me to be that scared? And I was trying to like put myself in Gorg's shoes, okay? Like what if like I'm like walking through on some safari and a giant lion sees me and out of the whole crew, the lion locks his eyes and is chasing me down. And as I'm running everywhere I can, I feel, I mean, just imagine you feel like the breath of the lion behind you as you're running away. And you know, at any second, the lion will overtake you. And you just, all you can do is just run with just total abandon, just waiting for the moment when that lion will pounce and sink its talons back into its claws into, into your back and immediately destroy you. I mean, try and get into that space of just sheer terror where something is locked its eyes on you and it's coming for you. Now, like, take it up a notch from a lion. Let's say a nuclear missile has locked its sights on you, like you're the code. They painted you with the laser. There is nowhere for you to run or hide where it will get you and will destroy you. Now hear the words of God and just be awed. I am going to contend with you. It's hard to get to that space of terror, right? Because there's nothing that is a fraction of the power of the one who wields the universe. And he wants to contend with his people. Why? He says, well, look, like, from Cyprus to Qadar, that's basically saying, uh, if for our language, if we were to say it, we'd say, look coast to coast. I mean, it's like basically from the, the far west to the far east. In fact, here's a map. I'll kind of show you literally uh, what he's talking about here. If you can kind of get your bearings there, um, you see the Mediterranean Sea on the, on the left there, and you see that island right there. That's Cyprus. That's over towards the coast where Israel would be, a little farther south in Jerusalem. He says, look to the coast of Cyprus. He says, look down to Qadar. The people of Qadar were like nomadic uh, tribes, people that would live down in the Arabian desert. Okay, so down in the bottom right corner. So he says, look to the west, look to the east. He's saying, look at the nations in your entire region. He says, the nations that you know of, have you ever seen this happen before? Like, look at all of those nations all the way around you and ask yourself, I mean, you know these nations, you know the names of their gods. He says, ask yourself, have you ever seen one of them turn from their gods? Have you ever said, like, okay, we're done with Chemosh. What's Baal all about? 
Okay, we're, we're done with, with Baal. You know, let's, let's look at this God. What about that God over there? He says, have you ever seen them change gods? No. They don't change their gods. And he says, and their gods are nothing. They don't change their gods and their gods are fake. What are their gods? It's some dude in a village who gets a piece of stone and carves a shape and then they set it up and worship it. It's stone. It's dumb as a rock. <laughs> what is a god? It's some, some goldsmith just carving a shape, maybe an animal, maybe a person, maybe some alien-looking person. And then they fall down and worship it. What is it? It's a thing some guy in some shop made. Gold or silver or pottery or stone. It's nothing. It might as well be a stuffed animal. That's what they worship. They might as well set up a, a stuffed teddy bear and just bow down and say, oh, whatever you tell us to do, we will do. You will save us. You will send the crops. You will save us from the, the mighty armies that are against us. They set up these fake false gods and they're loyal to them. But what have my people done? He says, you have exchanged your glory for something that doesn't profit. He says, you have been given the privilege of worshiping the living God and you've been disloyal. And not just, let I me mean, hear this, it's not just you've exchanged something alive for something dead, something animate for something inanimate. You've exchanged the living one, the source of all life, the inventor of life, the one that holds all life together, the one from whom all flows, including our very lives and existence. You've exchanged the living one. That was your glory. I gave that to you. I revealed myself to you, God says. I You've exchanged that privilege and that awe-striking honor for something empty, what do you get by worshiping a stuffed animal? What do you get? Nothing. And he expresses the gravity of this in this next verse. I want you to see what he says in, in verse 12. And let's just try to just grasp what he's saying. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate declares the Lord. Now in here, I want you to see how this is structured. Verse 12 is structured in the, uh, in the Hebrew like this. It's three commands. These are commands and then punctuated with a declares the Lord. So these are like, you know, it's really like strong commands, but the commands are to the heavens. So let's just get our bearings before we look at what the commands are. Let, let's talk about uh, the heavens. About 30 years ago, they, um, they sent this uh, spacecraft, Voyager 1, out into our solar system to be taking pictures. And as it was getting to the edge of our solar system and just beyond, they told it to turn around and instead of taking pictures of the universe, to take pictures back towards the solar system. So they've passed the orbit of Neptune and, and all of the other planets and it looks back and takes a picture and um, in the blackness, they kept zooming and zooming and zooming and zooming and zooming to finally find um, where a picture of Earth was in our solar system. And they, this picture is now famous. It's called the pale blue dot. Let me show you a picture of this uh, image that they took. Do you see it? Some of you are like, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see it. Okay, lem, okay, let me show you this next picture, okay? Just go ahead, there. <laughs> All right, you said, I just see a red arrow. Okay, but you get the idea, okay? They had to zoom that so much that the pale blue dot was literally a pixel. That's our home. Like if you were around in um, the early 90s, like you're, you're on there somewhere, okay? You're running around there. Like, that's, that's our home. That's our grand planet Earth at the edge of our solar system. 
That's not the edge of our galaxy. That's just past Neptune. That's the edge of our solar system. Like, just think about the heavens for a second. They've tried to estimate, like, what's the number of, of uh, galaxies, okay? Like, uh, how big is our, our, our galaxy? Um, I, I wrote some of these things down so I could remember them, but they say, like, just our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is, they think, 100,000 light years, okay? They, that's what their estimate for the Milky Way galaxy. It's got hundreds of billions of stars in it. But that's just our, that's not our solar system, it's our galaxy. Of course, our solar system has one star, but the galac our galaxy has billions of hundreds of billions of suns, okay? So conceivably hundreds of billions of solar systems in them. But how many galaxies are there in the universe? Of course, we can only estimate, estimate what that is. And they did one interesting way of trying to estimate that. Um, what they did is they pointed Hubble towards um, one space in the universe that was just black. There was no light because they didn't want light pollution from other stars and universes clouding out what it could get, capture. And so they trained it on this one spot in uh, the universe looking out that was black and they just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into that from for uh, months. They just kept looking at that one spot and eventually they got a photo of what they call the extreme deep field photo. Um, here's what they got. They like zoomed it out. Here's what it looks like. So looking into the blackness, they found this. Those are galaxies. They're not stars, they're galaxies. In that one tiny little black section, as they zoomed out, they saw what they, thousands of galaxies, and so they estimate that in the universe is something like two trillion galaxies. Not two trillion stars, not two trillion solar systems, two trillion galaxies full of hundreds of billions of stars. Now remember, within our galaxy, there's one star with a solar system. And if you go to the end of just that one tiny little solar system, and remember what it looks like when you look back at our little planet? It looks like this. So think of the heavens. I mean, our, our planet, I mean, we, we're these tiny little ants on our little blue planet that we, you know, rule and lead our planet. And we don't do that so well most of the time. You know, they say 70% of our blue planet is covered with oceans, and 80% of those oceans no human has ever seen. There are places in the ocean that are so deep that you could drop Mount Everest in it and it'd be covered by a mile of water. We even on our own planet know so little of it. He says, think of the, the heavens. The heavens include um, the not just the heavens itself, the glories of heaven, these galaxies and stars, but also in, usually when the Old Testament is talking about the heavens, it's talking about the heavenly hosts. It's talking about the angels, those who are in the presence of God, attending to God, these angels, these creatures that God made that are astonishingly powerful. They're not like, like an other-dimensional human. They're exceedingly more brilliant and glor glorious and powerful than a human. Every human that sees an angel is terrified. Angels have been known at the command of God to wipe out whole armies. Angels are exceedingly powerful. In fact, they stand by and they look at the work of God. Listen to what it says. This is what God says uh, to Job, to one tiny little human about the brilliance of his creation. He says in Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All of the angelic beings stood by at some point. Maybe this is literally 
literal or poetic, we don't know, but they've stood by understanding the mysteries of how God has made our tiny little planet that he put these little tiny creatures on and these incredible creatures look on and cheer as God is working his creation. I mean, think of God's creation. Let's put it like this. They estimate that a nuclear bomb at its hottest um, is a nuclear bomb is something like 100,000 degrees Celsius. A nuclear bomb is like the heat of the inside of the sun, which by the way, for us, after you get past 100 Celsius, it doesn't really matter anymore. 100 degrees Celsius, you're dead. 100,000 degrees Celsius, you're really dead. It's not like, well, just get some more sunglasses, like you're dead. And so when God spoke the first words into creation according to Genesis 1, he said, let there be light. And an explosion of light happened in our universe. And if you believe that is literally true, that God spoke that into the universe, it's not surprising that scientists have found traces of some gigantic explosion that said inestimable power in the universe. And so when scientists trying to grasp this original explosion of light, they've estimated that this, what they call as the Big Bang, had the universe for a split second after that Big Bang was something like 1,000 trillion degrees Celsius. You're really, really, really dead at 1,000 trillion degrees Celsius. That happens when God speaks. And he looks at the glories of heaven, these distant galaxies, these incredible angels, these, these creatures we can barely grasp. And he commands them by the decree of the Lord. He says, be appalled. Be shocked. Be desolate. Here's what he's saying. I mean, the, the word in Hebrew, be appalled, it's a command to be devastated to throw yourself on the ground like you've lost everything. When he says be shocked in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a command to bristle and just shudder in horror. Not like a shudder like, oh, that's uncomfortable, like shudder and bristle in horror like the worst conceivable thing has happened. When he says be utterly desolate, be in ruins, be in waste, like everything has been disintegrated. Can you imagine these glorious angels wielding, standing in the very presence of God, throwing themselves down, writhing in agony at the command of God to bristle in horror like they've been ruined? Can you imagine the, the sun dimming in light like it's weeping? Can you imagine galaxies starting to fall apart because the most terrible thing imaginable and conceivable has happened? One people, among all of these tiny, tiny creatures on this pixel of a planet, that had been given the privilege and honor, the unbelievable honor to worship God. Squandered it. You know, it says, um, there's only one thing that I, that I know of that it says the angels is a mystery that they long to try to understand. It's that God would care so deeply about these tiny creatures that defy him. Here's what he says. Let's, let's read this last verse. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Every city 
every people group need to be around water. You have to have water. And so most of cities, if you look, even modern cities, they're around ports or they're on coasts or they're near, they're near rivers, or they're at junctions between two rivers. This is something that is in every city. It goes back throughout antiquity. Why? You can have nothing if you don't have water. If you live in a very dry desert place, um, then your only options is to find living water that is a well of running water that goes deep, or you're by a stream or a river, a runoff probably from some mountain. You're either finding living water, that's what it is, running water, or you're going to carve out a cistern. Now, let me just show you um, examples of both from the uh, ancient Near East. So, for example, here's a picture of living water. This is the river that runs down from Mount Hermon in northern Israel. The snow uh, capped Mount Hermon has snow on it much of the year. The water runs down, down into the Sea of Galilee, down through the Jordan River and empties out into the Dead Sea. And that waters most of Israel. And if you go up towards the source, you have these beautiful streams. I mean, look at how crisp that stream is of living water. It makes me just thirsty just looking at that. I mean, just what a beautiful stream that you could drink deeply of and find your thirst just so deeply quenched. You just want to dive into that beautiful, crisp spring. If you don't have a spring of living water, your only other option, and in places in the desert, like some of the desert cities that they built in the ancient Near East, they would carve out a cistern. A cistern is, is uh, something that would hold rainwater, and there are sometimes very intricate ways they would capture the rainwater and run it into a vat that would hold it. It could be a personal cistern for the use of a, of a family or, or a small area, or a very large system for an entire city. So for example, here is a very large cistern that would, they would fill that with water. Obviously, they would not like crawl down into it typically. This is just, you know, someone, uh, archaeologists kind of exploring it, but they would run water down and they would capture it during the dry season. Or you could have a smaller version of that and it would look something like this, just a small place that the runoff of water uh, would be collected. And so for months during the dry season, you would drink out of that. Now look at that water. Which would you rather have? A cistern or a spring of living water? That is a no-brainer. It's been a no-brainer throughout all of history. You want a spring of living water. Which sounds more appetizing? Stale, stagnant water that's been sitting in a stone vat for months without moving or running a running stream that's constantly running as snow melts down a mountain. I mean, this, it's a no-brainer. So if you can live near living water, you want that. It's running, flowing, clean, crisp water, cool water. If you can't have that, you build a cistern. Think about this. Living water is something God created. It's by the hand of God. It's a stream that he created. A cistern is something man creates. That's not necessarily bad. There's some really impressive cisterns that they built. But you can never match what's been carved by the hand of God. One is crisp and refreshing. The other can get stale and even diseased and dirty. And what God uses that metaphor here, he says, this is what you've done. You've turned from me, the source of all life, to something dead that some person has crafted and told you to worship. And what that's like is turning from living water to a cistern. But then he specifies, not a good cistern. Because they might say, well, I mean, there's some cities that live by cistern. Like, that's actually, there's some impressive cisterns out there. He says, You've tur turning from me to an idol is turning from the living God to a broken cistern that holds no water. You keep going back to a well, trying to th have your thirst quenched, and there's nothing that well can give you. It's empty. That's what an idol is. I mean, it's the greatest, if you think about it, it's the greatest horror imaginable. God's people who have been given the opportunity to worship him have put up an idol as more significant than him. I mean, hear this. This is, this is spoken to 
God's people, Israel, Judah. This is not, he's not saying, look at the other nations that are idolatrous. No, this passage is, those who know better have chosen to carve out a broken cistern. Can we bring this passage over to us so that we're not just like, yeah, how, that generation, how terrible. Because this is to us, people of God. Is there something in your life, anything, something in my life that is more significant to me than the almighty God? And if that's true, that's not just like, yeah, I should work on that. We should bristle in horror. And maybe it's a greater horror in our generation than in their generation. Because what do we have that they don't? God himself entered into creation in the person of Jesus. And what did he do? He went to a well one day and he met a woman who was dying of thirst. So she had an inner thirst where she kept going from relationship to relationship to relationship, trying to quench that thirst. And what Jesus says is what you're really thirsting for is the living water. And he said, Jesus said, I am the living water. If you drink of that water, you'll never thirst again. We have Jesus, the living water. This is what the angels look down and long to understand. God, you keep loving this people. You've saved them, you re you've redeemed them. How is it that you've taken these tiny creatures and you've adopted them to be part of your family? How is it that you've, you've, you've raised them up and saved them? How is it that you expended the treasure of the universe, the Son of God for them who died on a cross and rose again from the dead? How have you expended that for these creatures, these rebellious creatures? The mystery of the love of God is almost impossible to understand. The angels long to understand it. So before we squander this unimaginable gift that is the offer of worshiping Almighty God, could we let Jeremiah say, stop! Don't go any further in your life. Don't do one other thing putting something ahead of God. Stop in your tracks and reorient your life to make sure God Almighty is on the throne and no one else is competing with Almighty God in your life. You say, well, how do I know if, if uh, I mean, I, I go to church, I pray, I sing songs. I mean, isn't that worship? No, no, it is God. First and foremost, there is no other. In other words, there's two diagnostics in this passage that we can ask ourselves, do we worship something other than God? And the first is, where are we going to get our thirst quenched? A cistern or the living God? Ask yourself, well, what is that deep down thirst inside of you? For many, that thirst is safety and security. And so some, it's like, look, I don't like the vulnerable feeling of, you know, I, you never know what can happen to your health, and I, it's, it's very scary. So, man, what I throw myself into is I, I, I have all this very detailed way I, I eat, I have all these detailed ways I take care of my body, I do, I'm very meticulous about everything, man, that's, that's what I daydream about, that's what I think about, that's what I read on blogs, and yeah, I read the Bible here and there, but man, what I throw myself into is my personal health. Is it bad to be healthy? No, it's good to be healthy. But here's what an idol is, is we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. It's when we're looking for that to save us. And we're throwing ourselves into our health like, man, I'm trusting this to keep me safe. Or maybe it's, I'm I need safety, and so it's finances. I'm throwing myself into finances, and I'm, I'm saving some, and I'm investing in myself, so I always have marketable education and marketable experiences and marketable gifts, and I'm just going to put some away, put money away. I'm going to make sure everything is safe, and every I is dotted and T is crossed so that nothing bad financial could ever happen to me. Or maybe it's like, I need to feel, when I feel secure, it's when I have a relationship in my life. And so maybe it's like, as long as I feel safe in this marriage or safe in this dating relationship or safe in this friendship, I will have safety and security. And what we're doing is we're 
carving out a cistern and we go back to that looking for safety and security and it's empty and it's dry and we're living our life, putting that relationship, putting our finances, putting our, our physical health up as our God. And it's broken. For others, it's uh, acceptance and approval. And we say, you know, here's how I'm going to feel significant. I will feel significant when I'm recognized. And so I'm giving my life to be successful. And if I can get to this certain uh, level in my business, a certain level in the size of our business, or if we can get to the certain income amount, if I can be successful enough and, and recognize or awarded or patted on the back enough, then I will feel significant. Or maybe it's I've got to feel like, I've got to feel loved and popular. So if I can just get this number of followers on, on YouTube, this number of followers on social media, if I get these number of people to like, or, or maybe it's just on a micro level, it's I post things so that people are accepting of my, uh, of my lifestyle. Or if I, if I don't get this number of admir admiring looks because of what I'm wearing, I, I've got to have that kind of acceptance in my life. And so I'm, I'm looking for that approval. I'm looking for beauty to do that for me. And if I don't get that, then I, I keep going back to that sister and looking for acceptance with my life. And really, if I'm honest, that's what I daydream about. That's what I think about. Or maybe for someone, it's, their, it's the, the pleasure in rest or fun. I just want my body to feel good. And so I give myself to, you know, it's, it's one vacation after next. And if I'm honest, I live for that next vacation. I work, 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 work. Oh, finally. Now I'm really living the life as I'm sitting on that beach or I'm, I'm at that amusement park. Now I'm finally living. And then I go back and I, I work, 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 work. And I'm just living from vacation to vacation when I can finally rest and play. Or it's I live for that next chance to go and, and do my hobby. And really, if I'm honest, I live for this hobby. I live to collect more gear for the hobby or get more opportunities to do that, that hobby or get better at that hobby. Or maybe it's from one hobby to the next. I'm looking for that kind of pleasure. Or maybe I'm just giving my life, just going after one experience, one substance, one food, one thing in the next to make my body feel good. And I keep going back to that cistern and what I'm looking for is joy but anything other than the living God the fountain of living waters will leave me coming up thirsty can we bristle in horror that of all the creatures in all of creation you and I have been given the opportunity to run to the fountain of living water and we forsake it for something we carve out of our own hands and we've seen enough commercials, read enough books, seen enough videos on, on, on the internet to tell us, no, this is your God to the point where we take that God built in some shop in some village and we hoist it up and bow down to it and it leaves us broken and empty. See, the other diagnostic question is God Almighty commanding the heavens to be in horror and devastated because the worship has gone awry. What devastates us? When you look back over your life recently, the last few years, has there been disappointments that you felt undone? Fears, threats, disappointments where all of a sudden you didn't even know who you are? Writhing before God. those things that we make ultimate things we use to define us and they're empty, broken cisterns. May we not squander the gift that we've been given because what's the gift? You know, we go to that cistern looking for pleasure and for rest and you know what the living almighty God offers us? the joy of the Lord flowing from the inside out, like, like living water flowing out of our souls. We've got a river of life flowing out of us from, from the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. He offers a peace that passes understanding. He offers joy in the midst of trials. Why? Because we have the privilege of entering into the presence of the one who's the source of all joy and pleasures at his right hand. There's joy and pleasures forever, evermore and he welcomes us into his presence, a place we could never be but by the shed blood of Jesus. 
What does he offer us? He offers us acceptance like we could never imagine us tiny rebellious creatures in a small solar system on a minuscule planet. And he says, I'm going to adopt you as sons and daughters, and I'm going to raise you higher than the angels to rule over them as heirs seated on the throne with the Son of God. You cannot get higher acceptance and love than that. That's who he says you are. How could we have any greater security? Our health, let's just cut to the chase. We're like blades of grass that are here one minute and gone to the next, and no one can fathom that mystery, but you and I cannot stop it. Finances, we know you cannot put your faith in finances. That is something that runs out inexplicably, and no amount of wise planning can stop what can happen to finances but you have something exceedingly better offered you. You have the one that holds your, that knit you together and holds you together. The one who has cattle on a thousand hills saying, I will treat you like a son and daughter. I am for you, not against you. And I will see to it that I am working all things together for your good. How could you find greater security than that? Christian, do you see what's being offered you from the fountains of living water? Can you celebrate? Can we, can we celebrate what God has done and what he offers you Christian. Look what he offers us. So can we dethrone this nonsense of our idols and run after the living God that we've been given the gift to worship? What do we do with those idols? Please, please don't walk out of here and say, you gave me something to think about. Please walk out of here with the spirit of Josiah. Tear down the idols. Break them down. Crush them and never return. And don't squander the gift that stuns all of creation. Some things in your life they, that we worship have no business being in our life at all Renounce it. Quit it. Break it down. Remove it. Cut it out. Repent from it. Turn the other way and never return. Others are good things that we've made ultimate things. And so they're not something to renounce. It's something that maybe to remove for a season. Fast it. And if that's too scary and too impossible, that might be confirming that it's got too much of a hold on you. Remove it for a season. Other things are things that you can't even remove, but you need to reorder. Put it in the right order in your life. Make your joy of the Lord the thing that is the greatest in your life. Some of you'd say, look, I'm not even sure I've ever had God on the throne. I've had religion. And if that's you, become a worshiper of Almighty God. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, death and resurrection made a way for you to have the privilege of worshiping the Almighty God. And I want to invite you in to be a worshiper of God today. Here's how I'd like for us to end our Bible study time before we enter into a time of, of worship. Can we just bow our heads and close our eyes in a moment of repentance? Idols are something to repent of. They're things that we call out before God and we say, this is an idol. My success, my career, my relationship, money, clothes, cars, houses, my job, my career, my children, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my habit, these are, you say, this is an idol, and I repent of it. Turn away from it. It's broken and empty. And be invited to streams of living water. Would you today, I mean, idols have a way of making us swell up with all kinds of excuses, all kinds of rationalization, but would you just clearly before God say, 
in your heart, silently before him, he hears your thoughts say, this is an idol, and silently name it before God. I repent of it, I turn away from it, I put you on the throne. And ask the Holy Spirit to guide you on what your next steps are. For those of you that are giving your life as worshipers of God, you can only do that because Jesus saved you. So you accept Jesus as your savior in order to live a life of worship to God. And so I wanna lead you in a prayer if you wanna begin that journey. It's a journey of joy and fulfillment and thirst quenching. Find that today. Say these words just in your heart to God. Whether you're sitting here at the West Pines campus, maybe you're in the auditorium over there at Cooper City, maybe you're watching online, just make these your words to God. Say, God, silently say, God, you saved me through the work of Jesus. I will give my life to be a worshiper of you. Thank you for loving me that much. I am yours. Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer just then and you're watching online, what I want to encourage you to do is to go to cityrev.org faith. Let us know so we can send you a Bible. If you're here and that was your prayer just then, you became a worshiper of God, you put your faith in Jesus, grab that Get Connected card in the seat back in front of you. Take a minute, fill that out. Let us know that you put your faith in Jesus. And then put that in one of the offering boxes before you leave so we can get you a Bible as well. We want to celebrate with you. Church, we're going to close in a time of worship. And what we're going to do is we're going to lift our voices to praise and bless the name of Jesus. This is a song that we're singing. It's not for us. It's not to make us feel good. It's ultimately for him because he is the object of our worship. So let's sing this out back to him. Would you stand with me as we sing? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.